typically for key man policies, they're corporate owned life policies. So the company would own the policy, the company would be, or the fund would be the beneficiary, and then you would be the insured. And then you could absolutely use it this way where it's a whole life policy, it's high cash value. This is the Self Storage Podcast, where we share the knowledge and skills from the industry's leading investors, developers, and operators to help you launch and grow your self-storage business. Your host, Scott Myers, over the past 16 years, has acquired, developed, converted, and syndicated over 2 million square feet of self-storage nationwide with the help of his incredible team at selfstorageinvesting.com, who has helped thousands of people achieve greatness in self-storage. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Self-Storage Podcast. I am your host, Scott Myers. And today on this episode, we have Sari Abraham, who's going to be talking about infinite banking. Now, we've touched on this topic once before, what it is, how real estate investors can use it. But Sari and I, we did a deep dive, had a conversation prior to this. And I thought, well, I need to get him on the podcast because he goes a little more detail. He's got a few more strategies. And to me, just broke it down a little bit simpler and opened up a few other opportunities that we can use infinite banking and then also dispelling some of the myths surrounding infinite banking. So uh, Sari, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, Siri, I've got your bio, your notes in terms of all your credentials, your many, many credentials and your experience. And so what I'd like to do is kind of take a deep dive into how you got started in this specifically for real estate. And as you know, Storage Nation here, we're all commercial investors and we chatted a little bit about the commercial side. So tell us a little bit more about how we can, as commercial investors, self-storage investors, utilize the infinite banking concept. Yeah, definitely. So a little bit of my background includes, I've been in this space for about eight years in financial services is mostly working with clients, budgeting, financial planning. I became a bank on yourself professional in 2019. That's an organization that really trademarked the kind of the use of cash value whole life insurance. Interchangeably, it's used a lot with infinite banking. A lot of real estate investors know it at that term. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of infinite banking, especially used with real estate investing. So to kind of like explain what it is like on a very basic level, it's using high cash value whole life insurance for self-banking purposes. And I want to just make it clear, it's actually completely different from whole life insurance that like Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman would talk about as far as like minimal rates of return, no cash value for the first 20 years. We're talking about like using whole life insurance for high cash value, high liquidity from day one to be able to leverage that money and being able to invest it, particularly real estate or other businesses as either a limited partner or a general partner, and being able to kind of take advantage of the cash growth in the whole life policy, as well as the intended commercial real estate investment, right? So that's kind of what I've niched down into and, and focus on. Most of my clients are real estate investors, business owners, and really in all types of asset classes, so self-storage, multifamily, industrial, all types of different asset classes, but really focusing on taking control of like that cash growth in your policy, as well as mm -hmm. the real estate deals. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's break it down into say the 60 second version of taking out a policy and then how do we borrow against it and what is prohibited and what is falls outside of what we can do with the policy? Yeah, good, good question. So like on a very basic level, you take a whole life policy, like you could even do a single premium whole life policy. That's where you take like, for example, a lump sum, you put a hundred thousand and just to make even numbers, a hundred thousand goes into a policy. You no longer have any future premium payments. It's just a one-time payment. And then after that, you could borrow out like within 30 days, 80,000 of that. Let's just say you take the 80,000, you invest it into a real estate deal. Now that loan you took out, the only collateral you need for that loan is just a life insurance policy. So there's no personal credit, no other collateral other than the policy itself. 
You take out that loan, it can go into the wherever you want. There are no restrictions on where that money can go. You can put it into a vacation, you could put it into a house you live in, you could whatever you want. So unlike IRAs, there are no restrictions to the money that you could use with from the life policy. It goes into that real estate deal. Now you have an outstanding loan now of eighty thousand, right? That loan is between you and the insurance company. It's not a subtraction of your principal of the policy. You didn't subtract from the policy, you borrowed against it, which is key. Because if it's properly structured from the right company, now that loan you have doesn't affect the growth of your policy. Your policy keeps growing whether you have that outstanding loan or not. So now you can imagine you have this 80,000, let's just say invested in a deal with you. It's growing, it's compounding. Let's just say we're estimating like, I don't know, a 30% internal rate of return over the next five years. But that policy now is still growing. It's still compounding at a very conservative rate, right? It's nothing crazy. It's like 4% or 5% a year. But the point is, is that you still have that cash growing and you have that money leveraged now with the real estate deal with you or other another real estate investor. So your money's working in two places now. Also paying back that loan, you could pay that loan back whenever you want. You can make monthly payments, annual payments. You could just wait until you exit out of the deal with you and then pay that whole loan back with interest of the insurance company. Or you could do it kind of, you're your own banker. That's how a lot of people also refer to this concept as becoming your own banker. So you're in control of paying back the loan. But I guess that's a very simple way of using the policy. Again, no restrictions, no other credit, no other collateral needed for the loans. You could pay the loan back on your own terms. You could do whatever you want with it. So yeah, did that answer your question? On a yeah, it does. Book? And so Siri, I've been seeing more and more. Well, I've known and I've been aware of this uh, for a number of years, but I'm starting to see it uh, more and more where other gurus, if you will, or just about anybody who's talking about uh, on a podcast, writing about real estate. This is one of the main concepts that people are looking up. So why wouldn't somebody utilize this concept and create a policy to be able to borrow against them to utilize for real estate or for anything else for that matter? Yeah, I have the same logic. Like, why doesn't every limited partner and general partner use the strategy, at least one policy within their investments? And it comes down to a couple of things. Like one, they, they just haven't heard about it, right? It's not like it's mainstream knowledge. Like everybody knows how the stock market or what the stock market is. Everybody knows what a mutual fund is, but not many people know what infinite banking is, high cash value. So I think number one, it's a lack of knowledge or just coming across the concept. But then also there's a lot of negativity around it. Like if you just Google right now, whole life insurance, you'll find far more negative than positive. So then it creates this like bandwagon appeal where it's like, well, a lot of people aren't doing whole life insurance. So that must mean that it's not that good. So that's another factor too. And then you also have like influencers like Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, a couple other people who talk about whole life insurance as being like a poor investment. And some of the things they say are factual, right? Like Dave Ramsey would say that like, if you had a whole life insurance policy, you won't have any cash value for 10 years. You'll have like a 1.5 internal rate of return in it. And that could be true because there are policies like that. There are policies where there's very tiny cash in it, very minimal returns. You can't really use it for anything except for just a death benefit. That's all. But then like my argument would be, and a lot of people in the infinite banking community would argue that there are 2,000 life insurance companies in the United States. And of those 2,000, only two or three of them could really do the things we talk about. So I think that, again, a lack of a further knowledge is that we've differentiated the different types of whole life policies, how they grow. Like the policies we use, number one, are only issued by mutually owned insurance companies. So mutually owned insurance companies typically share their dividends with the policy owners unlike stock-owned insurance companies. So that's one big factor right there is mutually owned. Another factor too is we're designing the policy and we're making sure that it's a non-direct recognition company. So that means that when you borrow against the policy, so in a direct recognition company, when you take out a loan, the loan you took out is going to affect 
the dividends and interest you're going to earn in the policy. It changes it. In essence, like a penalty for taking out a load. Whereas the companies we use are non-direct recognition. You're not facing a penalty or losing on the interest and dividends you would otherwise own. Whether you take out a loan or not, your policy still grows the same way. And then number three is that we're making sure the company has something called a paid up additions rider. If you were to translate it in a simple term, it's like a cash value rider. It's something that accelerates the cash value of the policy, which is important when you're using it for investment purposes. You want to make sure you have very high liquidity so that way you could invest in more things and seek higher rates of return. So mutually owned, non-direct recognition, and it has a paid up additions rider. So when you have those elements, it changes a lot of the things that Dave Ramsey talks about and other mm-hmm. influencers talk about. So to answer your question, a lot of people don't know about it. And when they do know mm-hmm. about it, they know more negative things about it than positive things. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where you come in. The three things that you just mentioned there, which is really where the arbitrage comes in, making sure that you have these riders in place, that you understand the language and that the policies are set up to begin with that allow you to be able to borrow against it. So it's found money, if you will. It's uh, access to capital that you didn't have before. And now the arbitrage is you're basically doubling down. You're using money you didn't have before and it's creating value in the policy itself, as well as the returns in real estate, provided you are making a profit on those returns. Is that a, a simple way of maybe defining the strategy? Yeah, that's exactly right, Scott. And the keyword you use is arbitrage. So like arbitrage is like where you make money from one market to another market, like a profit in essence, right? In this situation, you're leveraging the life insurance company's money, a policy you already own, and then you're taking that money and then you're investing it somewhere else. So you're making money in two different places. And this is where like our podcast comes in, like thinking like a bank, right? You're literally thinking like a bank because if you look at how banks operate, you go to a bank, you deposit, let's just say $1,000. You've just loaned the bank $1,000. Now the bank takes that money and then they loan that out to other people and mortgages, car notes, other types of package loans and things, all types of strategies, right? So a bank is really like, even if you look up the definition of a bank, it's really like a conduit, like a bridge. It connects somebody looking for money with somebody who has money. And you look at like further examples, like investment banking, same thing, somebody looking for money and somebody who has money. So we apply these same strategies into our life as real estate investors, not just giving up one asset for another asset. Because if you have, for example, $100,000 in a checking account, and then you want to invest in a commercial real estate deal as a limited partner, and then you move that $100,000 to that deal, you've just transferred from one asset, the checking account, to another asset. You gave up the money in the checking account for something else, which is perfectly fine. I agree with that because you're going to lose to inflation. You should invest that money in different places, assuming you have other reserves. But then if you look at the uh, another example where you have $100,000 in a life insurance policy, or let's just say $120,000 in a life insurance policy, now you're able to borrow $100,000 from the life policy and then invest in that deal. The difference between the checking account and life insurance policy is you keep earning interest on the money in your life insurance policy. Whereas in the checking account, you probably aren't earning any interest at all to begin with. And then when you do take out that money, you've just transferred one asset to another asset. Whereas in arbitrage now with life insurance, you're leveraging both. You have one asset that's carried forward into another asset and it can keep going now. The distributions, the income you get from the real estate deal could be used to fund another policy. And then that policy could be used to fund another real estate deal and so on. Listen, there has never been a better time to invest in self-storage. And there's no better team than ours to show you how to do it because we wrote the book on how to invest in self-storage. Literally, we created the best-selling home study system titled How to Find, Evaluate, Purchase, and Manage Self-Storage Facilities. We have helped thousands of people launch and scale their self-storage business and have become the nation's go-to resource for all things self-storage. That's because we not only talk the talk, we walk the walk. 
Day in and day out since 2005 through now, two recessions and amassing a 2.5 million square feet of self-storage, totaling over 15,000 doors nationwide. There is nobody else that has more experience in self-storage that is teaching people how to invest in self-storage. So if you're ready to launch and scale your self-storage business, then go to selfstorageinvesting.com. Click on the events tab to grab your ticket to the upcoming Self-Storage Academy. So that again is selfstorageinvesting.com. Click on the events tab. Seating is limited. And on behalf of our team, we look forward to seeing you then. Take care. For folks, if they're not following along, one other way to be able to look at this is that we borrow from insurance companies by way of our brokerage Mm -hmm. accounts. And so they take our premiums, they put it into a fund. So if they have to pay it out at some point, they want it to grow as well. And so they are loaning money back to us as real estate investors on the debt side. So the primary lending side. So all we're doing is um, utilizing this on the opposite end, which is really on the equity side in our own. So walk us through it, Siri. So let's say that I know that within several months from now, I'm going to buy a self-storage facility and it's going to be a million bucks just for round numbers. And I'm going to buy it the traditional way. So I'm going to go get a loan from a bank, say 75, 80, percent LTV, let's say 75% LTV. And so the equity portion I need is 250 grand. So now if I'm going to use infinite banking as a part of my capital stack in terms of bringing equity to the table, does that mean I'm going to go out and buy a $300,000 life insurance policy on myself and borrow against it for the equity piece? Or how does this figure into the capital stack? Let's just say the layman is just new to this and thinks, well, this sounds like great. I'm just going to go out and do what I just mentioned. What does that look like? Yeah, that's a good question. Good point. There is a capitalization period when you start the policy, meaning that if you wanted $250,000 today for the policy, typically in the first year, because it's about 80% that you can leverage from the policy. So let's just say you put in like 300000 in the life policy, right? Within 30 days, you could borrow out 250000 But I think that's kind of the part that kind of throws people off is that this is all really great. But then I have to kind of in the first year, I have to put in more money for the down payment or whatever else you want to use than actually intended. So instead of using 250000 for your down payment on this self-storage facility, you would need actually about 300000 liquidity. So I guess my advice in that situation would be is think long-term, think about what could happen in the next three or five years after implementing this, the tax advantages you would get, the guaranteed growth you would get from the policy. If that was the case right now, you needed $250,000 today to put as a down payment, then you need about 300000 roughly in your life policy day one to start funding the policy. But once you do that, you now have the growth. And another thing too is that, let's just say the lender asks you, where'd you get this $250,000 from? You could tell them, I borrowed against my life insurance policy. First of all, they understand what that means. And second of all, they're not going to look at that as a loan from your friend or from another bank or from somebody else, because the bank obviously wants to make sure that's actual equity, that $250,000 is real equity. It's not leverage from someone else, because if it was leveraged from someone else, it would compromise the bank's asset when they give you a loan against it. But when you tell them it's from a whole life policy, they get that because they know that you technically don't have to pay the loan back. They know it's a non-recourse loan and they know the life insurance company is not going to come after you for your other assets if you don't pay the loan back. They just mm-hmm. collateralize the policy itself. So it's really key for real estate investors when they're constantly trying to qualify for loans is that the loans against life insurance policies don't diminish or get in the way of other bank financing. So yeah, Mm -hmm. to make a clear example, you would need about 300,000, borrow against that $250,000 can go into the deal. And then you could use the income you get from that deal to pay back towards the loan. Eventually, you'll come out ahead because the policy is going to keep growing. You'll recoup what you paid for the policy, plus have a profit that exceeds your contributions. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm going to ask a question. This is maybe a two-parter as you're talking about the lender or a broker, mortgage broker that is asking, you know, where does the down payment come from? And they're looking at your PFS. So we're looking at life insurance as, as part of that, part of our liquidity or part of our personal financial statement that a lender wants to see and looking at the ratios and they have to get their hands on money or if everything goes to heck in a handbasket, how are they going to be made whole? So we've got insurance in many layers within our organization. So we've got umbrella policies. We've got key man life insurance for our private placements and some of our funds so that if I get hit by the proverbial bus, my investors, my limited partners are made whole, my family's made whole. I'd like to ask a, maybe a two-parter. If I'm going to use an insurance policy to borrow against in the fashion that we just mentioned, could I just rename or utilize a, say, a key man life insurance policy or an umbrella policy for a million dollars? These are going to be high high value policies to begin with because they're covering, in case I die, they're covering for a lot of debt and a lot of things or people to be made whole. So does that make sense? If I'm going to get these larger policies, can I borrow against them in the infinite banking concept and just name them as a whole life? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when you have a whole life policy or any life insurance policy for that matter, you have the insured, which is typically a person, then you can have the owner, which could be a person. It's usually the same as the insured or a company. So in this case, like your fund or your company could own the policy, and then the beneficiary could also be a person or a company. So in this situation, typically for key man policies, they're corporate-owned life policies. So the company would own the policy, the company would be, or the fund would be the beneficiary, and then you would be the insured. And then you could absolutely use it this way where it's a whole life policy, it's high cash value, everything we're talking about, the growth, everything, except if something happens to you, the funds go to your fund or to the company to make the company whole, to pay off the debts, et cetera. But you still have control over the loans. You could still use it as collateral. It's an asset on the balance sheet. So you can still use it as collateral for loans. You could use it as collateral for other things. You could use the income you get from your deals put back into the policy. So yeah, you could to answer your question, yes, you could absolutely use it. Everything we're talking about, infinite banking, mm -hmm. you could use it in a key man policy. Mm -hmm. Storage Nation, you need to have these policies in place anyways. And so hopefully, as I mentioned that, and this wasn't foreign to you, you need to have umbrella policies in place that cover the normal insurance policies that you have and the normal day-to-day -day operations of your business to cover yourself. Um, should there be that the outset of a policy that doesn't pay out, or if there's bad actors in your business or something happens, a um, negligence either on your part, on the part of a staff member, you don't want to be caught out without having too little insurance. And so one way of doing it is to make sure you have an umbrella policy. And then again, those key man life insurance policies policies. You don't want to leave your organization, especially a private placement to your staff or to your wife or spouse to figure it out or to make do on some payments that maybe didn't get paid out if you didn't create enough value in the investment at the time of your untimely death. So these are policies you need to have in place anyway. So you might as well set them up with that structure so that you can borrow against it and then that they are still in place should they be used for its intended use, which means your untimely demise. So Sari, what are some of the gotchas, some of the pitfalls that either you've seen or improper ways of uh, structuring these or just things that people need to stay ahead of as they're looking to go down this path? Yeah, good question. So number one, you want to make sure that if your goal is cash value and for investments, you should make that very clear with the agent or broker you're working with. Your intent is to use this. So you want to make sure it's high cash value. You should be able to see like year one, your premium on one column. And then another column is your cash value. And then another column is your death benefits. You want to make sure that you understand that. I'm not saying that you want to make sure that it's always really high because for some people, their goal might be just higher life insurance for estate planning purposes or for whatever. So understand your goals and make sure that the policy you're getting is, is consistent with your goals. Make sure too that it's non-direct recognition, that it's a mutually owned insurance company, that it's actually a whole life policy. I've seen some people try to do everything we're talking about here with Index Universal Life, which is another type of cash value life insurance 
insurance or even variable universal life. I think that it's very difficult to use universal life, either index universal life or variable universal life for self-banking purposes because of the ways that they grow in the future, their fee structure, things like that. You want to make sure it's whole life from a mutually owned company. And then even like Dan Sullivan saying, who, not how, you want to make sure that over the policy, over the way it's structured, over everything, that's the who you're working with, right? The advisor, you want to make sure that the broker advisor really most of their time is spent on using high cash value whole life insurance policies for real estate investors, for business owners. That's what they know. That's what they understand. Make sure they have some sort of, they're part of some sort of affiliation, like the infinite banking practitioners or bank on yourself or some sort of other trademark group so that there's consistent thoughts within that group, within that trademark that people could use to to actually use this in, a, in the right way. Not just they have a life insurance license, about 2 million people in the United States have a life insurance license. So that doesn't suffice the requirement to do this. You need more, I guess, more training and more in-depth training specifically in the strategy. Not like the local auto insurance agent who also has a life insurance license who can do this for you, but somebody who's specifically trained in using cash value life insurance. Again, it's the who, not the what or the how, it's the who that's behind this. The book, The Concept, is one in which it will serve you well. I have a little post-it note on the bottom of my computer monitor here. When I sit back and try to think of how am I going to get this done and yeah. um, you know, start Googling something, I say, wait a minute. No, it's who. Who am I going to hire to do this? And who am I going to pay? <laughs> I know. Mine's right over there. I'd get up out of my seat and I'd grab it as well, but very good reminder. All right. So who, not how, and how to think like a bank. Sari Abraham with uh, the podcast host, How to Think Like a Bank. I appreciate so much your time today and sharing what you've been sharing. So before we uh, wrap up here, first of all, how do people get in touch with you? Sorry. Yeah, thanks. Easiest way is thinkinglikeabank.com. So it's thinkinglikeabank.com. And then when you go to that website, you can find everything there. My LinkedIn, YouTube, email, phone number, everything is at thinkinglikeabank.com. All right, Sari, let's talk about now the biggest challenge that you've faced in business or in life, if you want. And what did you learn on the other side of it? Yeah, biggest challenge, uh, entrepreneurship, becoming an entrepreneur and specifically dealing with things. I guess the hardest part of entrepreneurship is really like not seeing something clearly. For example, when you have a job, right? Like your W-2 job, you're getting paid every week, bi-weekly. You're assigned a project or something to do. You know that there's a check coming at the end of that two-week cycle. Uh, whereas entrepreneurship, you have you still have to do the work. You still have to show up to podcasts. You show up to talk to clients, come up with content, do all these things. But there's no guarantee that there's a paycheck at the end of that two-week or month cycle. So I guess the hardest challenge is doing the work without the guarantee of there being work follow, you know, trust in the process, trusting the mentors, the coaches, going through things, planting seeds, even when you don't see the tree growing. That's probably the hardest challenge. Yeah, we don't become entrepreneurs. We're entrepreneurs. It's just when we launch challenges, just understanding that all this work that we're doing, that there is a payday and, and being okay with the fact that we can't see it. We don't know when it's coming. I think exactly. it's probably the bigger challenge. But let's talk about now the maybe the best advice you've ever received. It could be from anyone throughout your life, personal or business. Yeah, yeah. Best advice I've ever heard, you know, never take anything personally. You know, that's, I think that it's a challenge, right? But a lot of people have their struggles, their challenges. So never take anything personally, especially on a sales side, you know, working with clients, raising money, working in, in all types of matters, different matters, never take anything personally. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we as entrepreneurs, we do get told no a lot um, from yeah, bankers yeah. and from sellers and uh, just in business and in general. And over the years, we develop thicker skin and some individuals are just uh, born that way, rolls yeah. right off. Others like myself, I'm a little more relational and I, I tend to take things uh, personally. And so it's one of those things that I've struggled with over the years. So I can absolutely relate to that as well, Sari. But at the end of the day, if that is you out there, Storage Nation, just realize business is business and don't mm-hmm. take it personal because every no is just closer, one no closer to a yes and yeah. You don't know what's going on in that other person's mm-hmm. life. And just have recognize that and realize that you are who you are. And self-awareness is a beautiful gift you can give yourself. And just mm-hmm. know that you're doing this for a reason. And you're on this journey for a reason as well. So don't let the naysayers and other folks uh, get in the way of um, the goal that you had when you ultimately set out for this. So very, very sound advice, Sarah. I appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. It's good to get caught up again. And appreciate your time and looking forward to our next chat. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Take care. Hey, gang. Wait. Three things before you leave. First, don't forget to subscribe to the Self Storage Podcast and turn on your notifications so you never miss another episode. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review if you like the show. Second, be sure to share your favorite episodes and more via Instagram and don't forget to tag us. And lastly, head to the links in the show description and hit the following subscribe button on Twitter and Facebook to get a front row seat as we grow and scale our business and bring you along with us. Take care.